Hello, this is the Drucker Forum Report. I'm Peter Day with a podcast from the ninth annual Global Peter Drucker Forum in Vienna, where we're gathered for one of the main events, the gala dinner to celebrate the winners of the Forum's essay competition, the Drucker Challenge. Several hundred students and young managers from all over the world have submitted essays on this year's subject, Human Prosperity in a Changing World. But now the judging is over, and this evening the winners are basking in acclaim. And now it's the morning afterwards, and here with me are four of the challenge winners to tell me more about their ideas. I'm Anne Twombly, and I'm from Oregon in the U.S. And you're also studying in Vienna, aren't you? I am. Now, your essay had a memorable start because it was all about the the cups in Grandma Drucker's kitchen, (laughs) and you hung your thesis on that, didn't you? Well, I mean, you can find ideas anywhere, in the shower, on the street. So for Peter Drucker, he got inspiration from his grandma and the way that she arranged her kitchen and had broken teacups that she couldn't throw away. So she separated them into different categories and had a way of organizing them that was, that was quite unique. And you call this antiquated innovation? Yes, I do. It's a, an idea that can, or a, a way of finding solutions where you're not just dependent on technology, but you can look at the problem, look at the solution in maybe an older, but still a different way, and then move forward from that. So kind of the antiquated, the older, traditional way of looking at something and then taking it and moving forward. Yeah, but some people would say that Grandma Drucker's cupboards demonstrated uh, an obsession rather than anything creative. Possibly, but I think a lot, of, a lot of innovation isn't really recognized for being useful until it's actually useful. Okay, apply the, the cupboard image to growth and inclusive prosperity, the theme of the forum. <laughs> well, you take things that have previously been recognized as unuseful and you bring them together and put them in harmony together and you get something useful. So different types of ideas, different types of people, different types of backgrounds or education styles, you bring them together, you get something wildly effective and powerful and innovative. Do you get them accepted by the existing organization though? Do you have to set up something quite new to do to cope with this collision of ideas? Yeah, I think so. Oma Druka had to reorganize her kitchen, so I guess we have to reorganize business and organizations as we know them. Okay, apply this then to the world. It's uh, it's a nice image, but uh, apply it. There's a an amazing quote that is a good framework for this, that reflection is a prism rather than a mirror. And so if you look at the world through a prism, you're, you're deconstructing it. You're seeing the refraction of images and light. And so when you can look at an organization, yeah, we're probably still going to need some sort of cohesion and organizational structure, but we can reshuffle it. We can bring it more to a, a horizontal level where people are looked at for their equality and their qualities rather than their qualifications. Okay, yes. you are. I'm Ali Rushdan Tarek, and I'm a designer based out of uh, Kitchener Waterloo in Canada. A designer. You design um, concepts, uh, projects. Yes, uh, typically digital solutions. 
I design user experiences for people in the financial services in particular. That's a long way from where you started, though, and it's the personal experiences in many of these essays that is so particularly fascinating. We go back to Pakistan, don't we? Yes, I was born in a little village in the northwestern part of Pakistan called Chitral, and that was a while ago. And I immediately migrated from there to Saudi Arabia because my parents were looking for work over there. But I kept going back to Chitral. So you saw the place where you were born through the eyes of a, an outsider in your summer trips? Yes, I used to go back uh, every summer for 18 years. And over those 18 years, I kept, as you said, seeing it uh, from an outside perspective. And what I noticed was that there was always a little bit of a, uh, a culture shock kind of moment going back. And because in, in Saudi Arabia, we were living a very comfortable life with uh, constant electricity, with uh, processed foods. And as we were going back uh, at the time, for those 18 years, there was no electricity. We were operating on oil-based uh, lanterns and whatnot. You're moving from the first world, sampling the, the third world, and then coming back. Yes. And then you went on, off to America. I moved to Montreal, Canada in 2001 in pursuit of higher education. And that also opened up my perspectives and eyes to a, a, a different way of living comfortably. There was a lot more liberal social freedoms that came with moving to Canada. So you've got this extraordinary perspective on the world. Now apply this to business and what you're doing in it. Well, one of the examples of opportunities for inclusive prosperity that I saw, for instance, in places like Chitral is that it's, it's much harder to transfer money over there. In, in uh, Pakistan? Sure, yes. And, and when we were in Saudi Arabia and even when I'm in Canada, sending money back to family in, in Chitral requires you, know, you having to send money to some intermediaries and then having the recipient on the other end in Chitral travel at least an hour to the closest village or town in order to pick up that money. And yet these remittances are part of the lifeblood of a developing country, aren't they? Right, and they're used to that way of living. And what we see is there are not many initiatives that are being undertaken to try to include people on the other side and to make that experience of collecting money from remittances that much easier or more convenient. And so you end up having people spending a significant part of their times and their days just traveling just to get money. So that particular insight now informs the sort of projects you're working on uh, with an insurance company, with a, uh, with a financial services company. That's right, yes. One of the things designers are, are sort of taught is if you give the same problem to, let's say, three designers, they'll each come up with a different solution to that problem because they're injecting their personal perspectives into it. And so that gives me an opportunity to bring my perspective into that as well. And where I say, hey, you know what, this, this solution that we're coming up with doesn't take into account the time it might take for someone or the technology that's required for someone to use it. Like we need an electricity supply, for example. <laughs> Correct, exactly. Another thing that uh, people take for granted is the, the whole financial system is, at least that we're accustomed to, is based on interest. And there are large swaths of population in the world that would avoid doing or using any financial instruments that have anything to do with interest. So we need Sharia financial instruments, for example. Either Sharia or some type of financial innovation or solutions that don't require people to have to go through interest-based instruments. 
And, and this shaping background that is your personal experience is interesting enough to an employer in Canada, is it? I would like to believe so, yes. It adds the differentiation element that people are looking for, that employers are looking for. Now, I can resolve, I think, the problem of transferring money to Pakistan. Mobile money on your phone would do it, wouldn't it? To a certain extent, but even in, in Chitral, Pakistan, where you know handheld smartphones are now picking up, there's still a significant number of people who, who do not have access to the internet, who do not have access to you know data plans, let alone have a smartphone. But there are initiatives that are currently underway, not necessarily by us, but by other parties that are trying to bridge that gap. And do you have a solution to the problem yourself? The problem of money transmission to a place which has very few facilities? Not yet, but I'm, I'm bullish on certain technologies such as the blockchain that, uh, that can help transform that whole landscape. Cross fingers then. And that's an example of the insights that uh, you can bring to this quest for inclusive prosperity. Yeah. If you think about it, the, the opposite of inclusive prosperity is exclusive prosperity, something that we've traditionally been used to, where a, a select number of people are hoarding most of the wealth. I think uh, I, I recently read a report about how uh, the top 1% of the, the world's population now controls, I think, 50% of the wealth, something like that. So yeah, I, I would say it, it sounds like it's getting bleaker, but I'm also naturally an optimist. And I'd like to think that with a new generation generation of problem solvers coming onto the workplace that are more willing to bring their personal perspectives into problem solving will be able to start to see better solutions for those problems. Another Drucker challenge winner here, you are. I'm Amina Mendez Acosta from the Philippines and I wrote about prosperity in a world where survival is the highest attainable dream. Yes, you wrote again about intense personal experience, didn't you? I did. Like Ali here, I grew up in poverty, um, now in a small local village in the Philippines, a farming village that had also seen a lot of changes when technology came in, and there's a lot of disruption. Um, but I also... Your family was living on a tiny amount. My father is a tricycle driver, and my mother had a college degree, but didn't have any opportunities for employment, so she was a field scavenger, basically, and the total cash flow of the family is a little less than $4 a day. And you talk about what her hands looked like, movingly. Oh yeah, definitely. It's one of my earliest memories because as a kid, you don't really have the concept of material poverty, but you have a concept of helplessness. You have a concept of your mother not smiling very often and you can feel that desperation even at an early age. And her hands were black with work. Yes, because she's um, out all day uh, in, in the field with rust, so her hands were the ugliest, I thought, uh, ugliest hands, but also the most beautiful to me because of, of the way they've invested all they had for my education and my sister's education. Talk about the journey you have made to now then. Poverty is, is about opportunities not being available in a certain particular sector. In my case, one of my earliest memories was asking why my mother has a college degree and yet we are, you know, one of the poorest. And especially during schooling when I can see my classmates choosing very high graded universities and going off to college and I had no idea if I, if I could even enter college. And yet, um, and my mother and my parents never stopped trying. You had enough money for you to go to a decent school, did you? Yes, there was 
was a state uh, subsidized science high school, and during graduation, we were the, everybody had cars, and we were the only one with which had three wheels in our cars. But then my father was like, sure, they have four cars, but I have a daughter who has an honor. So that brought like pride to the family, and just really the education of the younger generation as a way to out of poverty is very, very powerful for them. And education took you abroad? Yes, it did. So uh, my mother got a microfinance loan, a little less than 100 euros, started a piggery business with three piglets that sent us to high school. And then I got a scholarship for the first two years in college in the Philippines, the top university in the Philippines. And my last two years in college was in the United States, also under scholarship. So I was in New York in a field trip and was just marveling at this particular story of how a nobody from a third world country is standing in New York in the richest city in a richest country. And that sort of defined my life mission of making sure that the opportunities that have aligned for me would align for many of the youths that are still under that same poverty trap. And despite the exhilaration of America, you went home, didn't you? I did. It's, 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 there is the strong immigrant dream. Um, but at the same time, and this is an insight coming from pov- like a life of poverty, I know what it feels like. I know the desperation. And this is where my motivation to help comes back and being on the ground. And because in, 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 this is the business of making prosperity out of poverty. And it requires that you understand the needs of those who are your serving, which, is, which are the poor families. What can you do, though? I've worked for the microfinance that gave my mother her first loan. And I was a corporate planning manager, so I was developing programs like the Green Energy Program, which brings solar lamps to off-grid communities. I was developing educational scholarship loan uh, programs. Um, But at the same time, I've I've also realized the need for a global set of skill set. So I'm back in Washington, D.C. for a graduate uh, degree in global human development. The mission is still the same, making poverty uh, uh, extinct. (laughs) Basically, but now I realize that technology, there are a lot of disruptors that are coming in and people who are fighting to alleviate poverty have to be equipped in that intelligence, emotional intelligence, connectivity intelligence to make that to make sure that the battle is won. So your journey is an ongoing one, but your your purpose, your what you're intending to do remains the same, inspired by those very early years. Yes, definitely. For my life, I define success as being able to have other people who was like me, who were like my family, um, get the chance to experience human prosperity, really experience it like everybody else is doing in the whole world. That's what you call inclusive pros- prosperity. It's why you wrote this personal story for this, uh, this essay, isn't it? Yes, inclusive prosperity for all income strata and for all generations. You're very young and already the personal story you have is much realer than a lot of the theory that has been talked about in the forum itself. It's a real experience you've had and a real response to this experience and the same out of Pakistan, isn't it? Sure, but also the theories that have been talked about helps me frame my own experience and make me realize that the situation isn't um, particular to my family or to my country. That is a global challenge. For example, technology is a disruptor. It happens at the lower income level. It happens at a higher income level. And it's all about making sure that nobody's left behind. And the real issue about poverty is that the low income segment is the most vulnerable to disruption. And that's where the resources have to be made sure uh, to be directed towards that so they are not left behind by these changes in the world that everybody's struggling with. And who's the best agent of change there? Government, uh, NGOs, companies? What works best? 
everybody has to be in it. I think the problem is so big that it would take everybody's resources and experience and talent. And I'm not saying that only people from the poor uh, communities have the right answers, but it's just the amalgamation of experiences that people from first world country has a technology and making sure that these things, um, so I, I came from a nonprofit background, but the couple who financed my scholarship is a couple from a private sector in the United States and they were willing to invest in somebody who they've never seen before. And there was a facilitation, a global network of microfinance institutions who made that possible. So everybody has a role in this particular battle. I would say that was driven by compassion. Yes, definitely. <laughs> and an empathy for people you don't know. And, and technology is a, uh, an enabler for the poor, is it? A lot of um, rich world people are now getting very frightened of artificial intelligence <laughs> and the disruption threat to ordinary jobs in the developed world. Sure, and we've talked about mobile money earlier, and we're seeing that in the Philippines. And, and in my opinion, technology makes things more efficient. It bridges distance and time. And when you are in a particular situation where there is very little resource, having that efficiency can be powerful. So technology has a very big role to play. However, and this is sort of my big thing in the essay, you cannot replace technology with compassion, with mentoring, and in my experience, with hope that people who are who have been so, who have been born, born poor have a tendency to give up and say, you know, I will die poor. And that ability to help others see, the ability to imagine drucker self-management, that there is a brighter future, there is potential, even not for them, but for their children, that is something that's translated over human interaction, over seeing people, other humans, succeed. And it, that's not something that technology can replace easily. Okay, from the kitchen cupboard, from Pakistan, from the Philippines to Africa. You are. Hi, I'm Chris McClay, and I'm the head of growth for an early-stage tech startup in Kenya called Link. Head of growth? Head of growth really allows me to be involved in everything. This comes out of personal experience, this startup, doesn't it? Absolutely. It's in Kenya, a place with a, a huge informal economy, a vibrant informal economy, but informal and small and small-scale. Over 80% of employment in Kenya takes place in the informal space. This means that people don't have contracts, don't have regular incomes, and it covers everyone from carpenters to cleaners, plumbers and more. And the personal experience was? The startup originally came about when a good friend of mine, Adam, had a cleaner who turned up two days a week at his house called Ruth. Now, Ruth always asked for more money. What she really wanted was more work, but as a single man living alone, he just didn't have that much to clean. And the problem for Ruth was that she struggled to find more work. She didn't have a CV, but even if she did have a CV, there was no formal job boards or online places for her to post her CV. Even if that did exist, she didn't know how to use a computer and didn't have access to the internet, even though she did have a basic smartphone. Therefore, Link was established to help people like Ruth to create a digital career identity, which helps her to tie together different pieces of experience and build a career. An extension of the, the organized gig economy. Absolutely. We often see the gig economy as something which is breaking down formal employment into little jobs or gigs. In a context like Kenya, it is the extreme of the gig economy and has been so for a long time. What we see as being unique about this context is the ability to take those different independent pieces of work and tie them together into a cohesive career. And this is a for-profit business? 
Absolutely. You make money out of uh, very poor people? <laughs> Good question. We don't charge a single penny to the workers on our system. We charge a very basic 10% commission on the cost of any job to the customer. And in a broken market in the informal sector like there exists in Kenya, we find a huge willingness to pay that 10% in order to find a high-quality professional that is suitable and capable for the job that I need done. So you've sort of started, or you and your colleagues have started a sort of LinkedIn for um, a very particular employment marketplace. We've tried to answer the question of what a LinkedIn looks like for the linked out. The challenge that informal workers in the blue-collar economy face is they have very little opportunity to showcase their genuine skills and to connect to new markets through a digital career identity which has pre-vetted and tested capacities we're able to showcase people that normally have very little opportunity to access a wider market now you're operating in kenya which is a country which has an extraordinary awareness of the power of the mobile phone absolutely I tried to set up something a little bit like Link a number of years ago in Liberia. And we struggled as it's such a difficult market to enter. What I was very excited about when arriving in Kenya was the infrastructure that already existed in place that we could sit on top of that enabled us to be very creative and build some really exciting technology that has very quick adaptation. Technology then not something to be frightened of? Absolutely not. Technology offers a unique opportunity to solve very human problems in a scalable way. For fascinating ideas, for fascinating essays, a lot of personal experience here. But the world's a messy place. Amina, what do you make of all this? This is the very reason that I am in the Drucker Forum and I have written that essay. As Amartya said, development and prosperity is about freedom, freedom from hunger, freedom from fear. And the fact that there are people, very bright people, very experienced people who are coming here together in this forum and talking about inclusive prosperity makes me very optimistic. Does it? It makes you optimistic. Does it make you political too? Do those sort of thoughts start you thinking about a career in politics, for example, simply to get things done? I think there's a role for everybody in that, and I have a long way to go in terms of determining my particular career. But the fact that we have every person from seeming diverse background makes me optimistic that if we need a political person, if we need a person in the politics to make it done, somebody will rise up from this generation or from the older generation. But the fact that people are talking about it, even if we don't have the answers now, the fact that we are thinking and putting resources in it makes me very confident that people will rise up at the right time in the right sphere to get it done. Chris, you're an interesting optimist because you've had failure in Liberia. Absolutely. I've had a lot of failure in my career. <laughs> the very nature of dealing with complex social problems in the global south, um, having worked in the aid and development sector for eight years in various different countries, means consistently failing and consistently finding out how to improve um, behavior. And a thing that I'm so excited about with Link is having really struggled to increase access to opportunity, which is one of the most foundational parts of inclusive prosperity. Technology really can create new access that never existed before. Thank you and congratulations, you four essay winners from the Global Drucker Challenge. This is the Drucker Forum Report. I'm Peter Day. Another podcast coming up soon.